You're listening to The Catalyst with Samantha Chris, where we explore the inner workings of embracing the unknown, from ordinary daily habits to extraordinary measures. Get ready, we're about to ignite change and inspire action. Today's guest is a clinical social worker and psychotherapist. She has a private practice specializing in loss and bereavement, stress management, and relationship issues. She is the author of Someone Died, Now What? A Personal and Professional Perspective on Coping with Grief and Loss. She is the clinical director of Camp Jackie, a weekend bereavement camp for children ages 16 to 17. She is the co-host of the radio show Life Unrehearsed, and most recently, she is also a TEDx speaker. She has changed her perspective on death, which in turn has changed her perspective on life and living. Without further ado, please allow me to introduce Corey Sirota. Corey, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Hello, everyone. <laughs> so some of our listeners might be a little shocked that we're talking about death, but that kind of reaction is not uncommon for you, is it? Not at all. It's one of the most uncomfortable topics that people love to avoid. (laughs) What are their typical reactions when you bring up the subject or they find out that this is something that you actually specialize in? One of the typical reactions, although there are many, is a really questioning look on their face as to why would somebody want to work in this field or focus on that and isn't that depressing? So if I may, first and foremost, it didn't find me. I found it. And we can talk Mm -hmm. about how that happened. But also it just speaks to what kind of society we live in, which I call a death-denying society. We're so uncomfortable with this topic that it makes people really, it takes them out of their comfort zone. Yet it's an inevitable reality. Right. Which I find so interesting because I'm someone who has both experienced grief and loss and simultaneously have been that person that I'm not really sure how to approach the subject, how to give my condolences. And I, and I do get kind of awkward with it. So I, I feel the reality on both sides. I think you're in really good company with <laughs> most people who really don't know what to say. So what we tend to do is oversay or mm. Uh, this desire from a really good place to make it better. So one of the first messages I'd like to put out there is that you can't make it better. You can support someone or like I, I like to say, accompany them through the grief process, but making it better is bringing the person back, which we don't know how to do. So let's try to support them by just being there, saying less, listening more. Which I totally appreciate. And in those moments, when you are accompanying someone through that process and maybe they don't want to talk, how does that, how do you listen more in those moments? So I think it's uh, Mark Twain who said, if we were supposed to talk more than listen, we'd have two mouths in one ear. (laughs) So if you use that uh, analogy, it really is about, unfortunately, I'm going to say going into allowing yourself to accompany them in a dark hole in a very, uncomfortable place which then get comfortable with the discomfort because this isn't about you and if you remember that this is about you wanting to support someone through a difficult time then you recognize that there really isn't much that you can say but just allowing them the space to talk about their feelings 
or not talk about their feelings. Just sit and be with them, be present, not trying to sugarcoat it or make it better, but saying, this must be difficult for you. Not saying, I know how you feel ever, because we don't know how someone else feels, but Mm. saying, "Um, I don't know how you feel. This must be very difficult for you. What would be helpful? Ask them. How can I help? Yeah. How can I help? But, but don't say, call me if you need anything. (laughs) Because when you say that, people typically don't call. So if you want to help, do concrete things like a carpool, pick up some groceries, make a meal. All of these things um, can be really helpful. And people, when you say, call me if you need, if you need anything, they don't really want to ask. So they won't. I find that really interesting. I was actually having a conversation with someone not long ago and unknowingly dropped that line and said, listen, I'm always around. If you need someone to talk to, call me. If you need anything, I'm here. And they said, and it didn't come from a place of hurt or ill intention, but their response was, you know, that's what everyone says. And Mm. yet I still feel really quite alone. And so they've had this outpour of what people I think think is support mm-hmm. and in showing that I'm around, you just have to holler. But the reality is they're, they're not in a place to want to put their hand up and say, okay, I'm ready to receive help right now. No, it's true. And it's a great example and good on that person for expressing how they felt. Cause mostly we don't say it and we just think it and, or feel it and, and leave it. But it's a double edged sword. On the one hand, I'm suggesting that you do offer, what can I do? Can I do a carpool? Like things that are concrete. On the other hand, you don't want to, as a griever, you don't necessarily want to be asking, but people don't know. They want to help. You have to teach them. In a perfect world, maybe you wouldn't have to, but in ours, we do. So I think if you ask, then people are willing to help. But if they don't know how to help, they'll just make the blanket statement. Well, let me know, you know, call me if you need anything. Right. So I think there's kind of a message of meeting each other where mm-hmm. we're at, right? In, in meeting the person where they're grieving, understanding that we are going to have to put in a little bit of effort. We're going to have yes. to have those potentially uncomfortable conversations or, or extend our hand further than we thought was necessary. But as the person going through it to also recognize that we can't read your mind and that mm-hmm. we'll need a little bit of guidance and how we can best help. Right. So you're on a mission to change the way we view and talk about and experience loss. Can you explain the SCARS method that you use with your clients to better understand what they're feeling? So SCARS is an acronym I created to really help people understand why we grieve the way we do, where that comes from. And it really was evidence-based research that I put together a lot of the literature and said, how do I help people understand this in a way that they'll remember? So Mm -hmm. I came up with this acronym. Well, how do you know how someone's going to grieve? Depends on how many scars you have. And scars stands for the S, the first S stands for society. How does society view that loss? Is it a socially acceptable one, like a long-term illness of of an elderly person? Or is it something that might be socially negated or dismissed by people like a miscarriage, a stillbirth, perinatal loss where, well, at least you know you can get pregnant or uh, at least you never got to know the baby or a suicide, homicide where it makes people really uncomfortable. If society is uncomfortable with the way in which somebody died, they're not going to talk about it. And that becomes a challenge for the griever. 
So that's the first S. C stands for circumstances. What were the circumstances surrounding the death? I'm often asked, what's worse, long-term illness or sudden death? And I'm like, neither. It's not mm -hmm. a competition. Each loss is unique to the individual and, and what they're experiencing. So an example uh, that I've used often, which is something that I experienced with a family where a 23-year-old had died and I worked at a funeral home and a woman whose 86-year-old husband had died the same day said, you know, I know today is a sad day for the 23-year-old. That's a tragedy. Yet, and my husband was 86, yet at the same time, if you and I are both wearing tight shoes, your pain is your pain and my pain is my pain. So really to remember that it's not helpful to compare grief. Nobody has it worse. Yours mm -hmm. is, as, is, is worse for you and, um, and, that, and that's all you know. So that's the C. The A before, sorry, before we move on to the next or to the first A rather in SCARS, when people you know that you work with and that you speak to are talking about the circumstance do you feel that there or do you recognize that there are a lot of people who will compare absolutely it's like okay. almost as if i don't feel like mine is is significant enough because i know that well you lost a, a child and i lost it. and i'm not saying that it's just everybody has their own unique experience and it's all that they know so right. i would hate to think someone would feel badly that they're not allowed to grieve as much because it is in the bigger society maybe not deemed as tragic right that's a, it's really it's an important distinction to make because i think we can get caught up in and not just in grief and loss but in life and so i understand how that would translate into an experience such as this because we're kind of constantly in, in compare mode and so it's helpful to know that that is um, it's really not something that we ought to pay mind and attention to in this moment because, like you said, it, it, what we're experiencing is all we know and our pain is no greater or less than someone else's. Exactly. So okay. you know, also well said and, and articulated. So knowing that is a really important piece as well. The mm -hmm. A stands for ancestry. How was death talked about in your family? This is a big piece because we don't even realize that the messages we got growing up about whether we can even talk about death or dying or how we handle it stick with us and teach us how we're supposed to cope with this. And so if nobody's talking about it or if it's sweep it under the rug, I've had clients that have been, uh, their parent died when they were three and all pictures were removed and they were never to mention their name again. Basically, mm. they erased the person. And that's what the family, this is not a judgment, that's what the family did because they believed that that's how you handled it at that time. But it really isn't helpful to the grievers, or in this case, uh, the young man who grew up that was his vision of death is people disappeared. He didn't really understand it. So if that's how in your family, you get the message, don't talk about it, or funerals are no place for children, you are left to create your own definition of how one's supposed to grieve and how to handle death. So I will hear people say, um, I don't, I think I'm doing something wrong because it's been six months and I'm still crying. Mm. And well, why do you think there's something wrong with that? Well, I'm supposed to, you know, my family, you wall, you don't wallow in it, you suck it up. And so that's the message is therefore then I, because I'm still crying, I'm doing something wrong. 
Interesting. You, it's, it brings back even a personal story. Just last week, my mom came across a picture of my uncle who we lost. It'll be 10 years ago soon. And it was kind of just framed, stored on top of the fridge and she put it out. And, and I, I was a little bit taken back. In her place, she'll have pictures of everyone that she loves, past, present. And I'm for some reason, and it's not necessarily, maybe there's some unpacking to do here, but mm-hmm. um, when the picture came out, I was kind of taken back because I don't have any pictures of family up. And because to me, it, it just, it represents sadness. Mm-hmm. And we view it so differently that, you know, we had a really great conversation and understanding how she viewed it versus how I viewed it. Just talking about it, talking about how the family Mm-hmm. Uh, sees it, how the family experiences it. And just bringing that conversation to the surface is really healing in itself. It's great that you had the conversation and you also raise another really important point, which is grief is very unique to every individual. So not no two people, even within the same family, even for the same death, grieve the same way. So right. again, it looks like as if, well, why are you crying? Why are you not crying? You're crying too much. You... Uh, but we're all so different. So we need to do it the way we need to do it. That's helpful and supportive for us. So I, I say, as long as it's not illegal, immoral, or dangerous, do what you need to do, because according to somebody, you're going to be doing it wrong. Yeah. And, and it's, it's very much the feeling that I had and, and not because of anything she said or did, but because it didn't fit how she was going through it, you know, and I was, I was kind of thinking, well, gosh, maybe I should have pictures up. And there is, there goes that comparison again, right? Yeah. So, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's Ancestry very hard not really... to, very hard not to compare. You, 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 we just do it naturally. Yeah. Okay, great. So that's ancestry. So what is that's the R? Ancestry. Uh, R for relationship. So it's very different to bury mother, father, sister, brother, aunt, cousin, uncle, grandparent, child, or pet. Not better, not worse, just different. What is... Um, very important in terms of a relationship is not essentially who died, but the relationship and the meaning of that relationship that you had with that person. So again, it goes back to the comparing a bit, but just looking at and recognizing that for someone who had a close relationship with a friend, that might be more traumatic for them than a relation than a family member or for the pet lovers who have a pet that has been in their family and been with them through all kinds of good, bad, and different um, life cycle transitions, that can be more devastating than, a, than again, a family member or someone else. And that we tend to judge, what, why are you grieving like that? Or, or we uh, judge ourselves like as if we're doing something wrong. Like, I, how come I'm not crying? My grandmother died, but, but I can't seem to manage the, the, the death of my pet. And it's not about who died. It's about the meaning of that relationship that you had with the person or the pet. And that's what's going to have a significant impact on your grief process. So that would be the R. And then the last S stands for support. Um, I think it's really important to recognize that support comes in many shapes and sizes and that it might be family members, but it might not be that a good therapist or an online support group or some literature or some good friends can be equally or even more supportive than family members. And that's not in terms of, uh, it's, I'm not suggesting that family members aren't supportive, but 
crisis brings out the best and the worst in families. Mm. And so you can see, I've seen families really cling together and get a lot of support. And I've seen families completely fall apart. And that's, it's tragic. It's unfortunate, but it's not shocking to me because it, it is a crisis and it's a change and people handle change very differently. So Especially can, I can imagine, you know, when it's, it's the change of, of having the presence of someone, it's yeah. not, you know, something that we experience often in life. I mean, knock on wood, um, we, we all experience it, but not to the same degree as we perhaps would changing a job or changing locations. And so, yeah, I can imagine support being ever necessary at this stage. And I, I don't think that people recognize how important support is and that if you don't get it from one way, that there are other ways to seek it. And it's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength to say, hey, this grief thing, I'm struggling. I need some help because people are really good at denial, <laughs> avoidance mm. and denial. I say denial stands for didn't even know I am lying. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. So it, they're good because it, it's, it's a normal, maybe it's sort of a coping mechanism that works, but it only works for so long. And so I will tell people, you need to go through your grief process and they'll say, okay, yeah, okay. Then they'll look at me very um, questioningly and, and go, what does that mean? It means you need to allow yourself to feel the pain, to talk about it and to process it because if not, it will go somewhere else physically, uh, insomnia, you name it. So for those who are listening or have friends and family who have felt like they are not supported by their loved ones, what are a couple other avenues that they can explore to get that support? So if it's not some, sometimes a good friend, sometimes it could be a colleague. Sometimes it, uh, I'm course a big fan of uh, professionals uh, therapists counselors coaches even online support groups I'm a huge support group fan I think when it comes to grief and loss it it lends itself so well to being in an environment with other like-minded people who are experiencing something similar not because they're going to give you answers but they're going to validate your experience and understand it in a way that unfortunately many people don't so attending any kind of whether it's online or uh, in person in, in your community, some kind of support services really makes a difference. If you're not a group person, I get that and I respect that. So maybe individual types of counseling can be really, really good. And there's literature out there. It's one of the reasons I wrote the book, Someone Died, Now What? Because we don't know what to do and it's not right. about what to do, but it's just a guide to help put things in perspective. Wonderful. So support is a huge piece of the puzzle. You do talk about other coping strategies in your book. So if you could share three things that we can do to cope if we're experiencing grief and loss, what would those three things be? Oh gosh, where do I start? Um, I, talk, <laughs> I, I think, first of all, understanding the grief process, understanding that it's a process and not an event. So psychoeducation, which is something I do with my clients all the time, understanding that you don't, even though literature says start shock and denial and disbelief, which is all true and can happen. It's not nice, neat fashion. So it, it's complicated and it's confusing and you go through ups and downs, understanding that grief is a roller coaster, not 
an event that happens and then unhappens. So that's peaks and valleys and mm. that it takes time. How it's much not a linear time? process. It's not a linear process. Even though the literature would put, it puts it that way. It, it, you go back and forth from different stages. So understanding that, understanding that it takes a good year to process every birthday, holiday, anniversary season. And that it doesn't mean that you're fine and good to go after a year. What it means is you now have the knowledge and the experience to know you can find your way through every birthday, holiday, anniversary season. So mm -hmm. that's a really um, important piece to go through and that it will change all the time. So one, that's one, just one thing is psychoeducation. Another piece is to um, understand that there are triggers that will come up throughout the entire journey, uh, your grief journey. So they'll, things like the, a can of soup or a, of course the birthdays and holidays, but also even someone saying something or a, a Valentine's Day or a, a show on TV that trigger your reaction and they hit you and they hit hard because you don't always know or anticipate that they're gonna come. Right. So even you mentioned looking at pictures, like you have a reaction, know that that's normal and that's part of the grief process. And so that again, not going crazy, you're grieving, understand secondary losses that there is aside from the death that you have experienced, there are changes in roles, whether you were a caregiver, a partner, a spouse, a friend, a pet parent, that's something else that's going to change in your life. And so we need to find, recognize it and find other ways to keep ourselves engaged and, and busy and have purpose. Because I think that people, if you are very involved in the caring of someone who is ill and then they die, well, you've lost that role and you can find yourself grieving just that, that change as well. Right. I, I, you know me enough to know, Samantha, that laughter is a big, important coping mechanism for me. It's yes. a great stress relief. And I know that people don't always feel like they can laugh or that they find anything funny. And I get that. But it is a great stress relief and does help you cope. So never in, instead of, but allowing yourself to know that you can laugh about different things. I'm going to share a story about a little girl who, um, whose cat died and her mom told her that she had sad news that the, her cat Fluffy had died. And, um, but Fluffy was a great cat. So not to worry, God needed her cat. And she looked at her mom and she said, what did God need a dead cat for? <laughs> So, you know, it doesn't have to be a, 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 a laughter around death, but it's just a way of, of allowing yourself some relief. And probably right. the most poignant suggestion I'm going to make is that we find ways to honor the memory of the deceased. And there are tons of ways to do that, whether you create a foundation or you volunteer at a place that they liked or they felt passionate about or you write a blogs about them or you light a candle in certain times of the year or you cook their favorite foods or you put their pictures around just keeping their memory alive in a way that resonates with you because it has to be good for you there's a, a gentleman i know in ottawa who he's called monsieur papillon and he sells butterflies 
and people buy the butterflies and release them on special memorial days for their, their loved one. And that's a great way. And the other thing, of course, I can't even, I have course is the, my camp, the camp that I do camp air. Well, camp Jackie is a weekend long free bereavement camp for children. And it's a place for them to honor the memory of the person who died. And that is an amazing way to cope, learn to cope and normalize your experience. Absolutely. I think it's incredible what you do. I know people who have sent their children there who just have such incredible things to say. And not only about the, the way that the camp is, you know, the, the infrastructure and the lessons learned and the experiences, but the awareness that the kids leave with and the shift in perspective that they have um, is, is really, really powerful. And I think these are the things that when you grow up and you become an adult and, you know, that have a, such a significant impact on the way that you see the world and the way that you know yourself and on the way that you can prepare yourself future, you know, for future similar experiences. Right. I think it's incredible what you do. Thank you. You know, we talked at the beginning of this, uh, of this podcast about demystifying death and dying, and that's a big piece of the camp, but all the work that I do as I mentioned, the death denying society, we normalize their experience and teach them that death isn't a taboo topic to talk about. But in fact, let's use the words. You have heard me also say that we, we, we don't even want to use the words. We say gone, lost, passed away, or my personal favorite expired as if someone <laughs> were yogurt, but we do it. And there's tons of acronyms that we use. It just sends a message that we can't talk about it. Well, we can, but it's up to us to, share that and to open up those conversations with each other because we all know it's inevitable. It's not like, well, the death rate is a hundred percent. Someone at some point in time in your life has or will die. And how are we going to handle it? That's a really a choice that's up to all of us. Right. You did mention that there will be triggers, whether it's the can of soup or the TV show or Valentine's day, but when those unexpected triggers occur, mm -hmm. what can we do to move past that and to feel, I don't know if, if feel better is, is what I actually want to say right now, but to, to kind of shift our perspective or our emotion in that moment. I think it was a great question. I think it's important to recognize that number one, to know that they come and they go and knowing that the reason they come is because of the relationship that you had. So as painful as they can be, pain is inevitable, but suffering is not painful. But at the same time, would you want to not have that pain? Because having it is because of the relationship you had. Right. So it's recognizing that it's normal and that it, this too shall pass. Talking about, you know, what feels normal in speaking with, a couple of my friends and close ones who feel like grief and loss is synonymous or feels very close to depression is something mm -hmm. that I, I hear. It, it is kind of a recurring theme with some of the people close to me, right. but it, they're not indeed the same. No. Right. So can you explain the difference a little bit? So I would say that in grief, you have a reason to feel sad in depression. You don't need a reason to feel sad. Mm. Yes, they look exactly the same or they can look pretty much the same, but really it's about that there is a reason, there's a cause for your sadness when somebody dies. When you're depressed, there may not be any 
precipitating factor or any trigger. It's just a feeling. Um, another, I think it was Gloria Steinem said when uh, she had gotten married very late in life and married the love of her life and then he died. And she said, I now know the difference between grief and depression. In grief, everything looks sad and lonely. In depression, everything feels sad and lonely. Mm. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. It is. You haven't always specialized in grief and loss, though. So can you share with us how you got into this field and really what changed your perspective on life and living? So as it's funny, I usually start with this. So I, I said to you, what's a nice girl like me doing in a profession like this? Um, I was already a social worker, new to the field. And at um, probably a couple of years in, my brother, who was 26 at the time, was hit by a stolen vehicle. He was walking on the sidewalk and the car went onto the sidewalk to try and avoid the police and hit him and he died on impact. And of course, as you can well imagine, my life changed forever at that point. Mm -hmm. I didn't know much about grief and loss. I had been fortunate to have had very few people in my family die. And I never really dealt with much, much adversity. So this was the first experience with it. And I started to realize quite quickly that there was not enough services out there to help families deal with this. And um, so I started to look as a community organizer, I started to look for services and found that there was really very little. And so I thought maybe I would create some. And in my quest to create some, I came across a funeral home that was offering a program called Aftercare. It was a service for families, a free service for families to help them navigate their grief process by filling out government paperwork, connecting them to different kinds of resources that were available, everything from finding clothing donations and furniture donations. And I said, you know, I really am very interested in this. I, and I applied and uh, I was hired. So I worked with, uh, with this funeral home for a number of years. And at the same time, I went back to McGill, having already received a graduate certificate in, loss, a graduate certificate in social work, I went back and did a second certificate in loss and bereavement so that I had a more of a theoretical basis and continued to work with families through the funeral home. And then after I left the funeral home, kept up a private practice and continued to offer groups and support for many, many years, just being able to help them, hence the book, a personal and professional perspective, seeing hundreds of families trying to navigate this and just desperately wanting to help them. And I find that so admirable. I can't even imagine what it would be like to experience grief and loss, to internalize it while simultaneously being on a mission to help others cope with it as well. Did you find that experience healing for you or was it difficult to help them navigate something that had hit so close to home? Yes and yes. Okay. <laughs> I, essentially, you, I do believe that if you're going to do any kind of work in the helping field, you have to have done your own grief work first. You have to have process I, I practice what I preach you have to have processed and come to terms as one can so to speak with what has happened because even though I have the experience it's not about me when I'm working with clients it's about the right. client and their journey so I think you 
very much need to understand and have a very good hold and um, perspective on your on your journey and self-awareness about what brings you to the table of any work you're doing in this field for sure but not just grief in, in the helping field in general and so I do think that it helps me understand families better but I'm always very aware of that it's your process your journey your experience so this isn't about me and how I did it it's about understanding you the griever the grieving family and how i can be helpful in i think for what i've seen is that people it does resonate with people that i'm not just saying something academically that it is both a personal perspective and understanding although like i said to you we all grieve differently so just because i did something one way doesn't mean that that's the way to do it so i will help guide families through their process but the fact that I have this knowledge really helps me. Um, I wouldn't have admitted that years ago for a long time. I said, I didn't go into this because that happened. Yeah, no, right. (laughs) (laughs) Of course I went into it because it happened. And so I do believe very proudly that I honor my brother every single day with the work that I do. And that's a perfect kind of segue into what I wanted to touch on next, because you talked about, honoring the deceased as part of a way in which you can cope. And I think it's so beautiful that so much of your life has been dedicated to making this difference and having it such an impact, which really does honor him. And how have you, I mean, obviously this is, this is present in the work that you do. um, But is there anything else that you could touch on that will help shed light on how you've kept his memory alive while allowing yourself to create a new normal? So uh, the, the book is written in his honor. I did a blog by someone else's suggestion. I've written various blogs, but on the 30th death anniversary, as I call it, of my brother's death, I was suggested that I write something and I decided I would write 30 years later, 30 reasons why I will always remember him. And it was an incredible experience for a number of reasons. And I really encourage families to do this because of the experience I had, which was on the one hand, people that didn't know him were so grateful. They thanked me for writing this and sharing all these things about my brother that they didn't know. And so that was great. But then people that knew him used it also as a platform for them to share their experiences and of memories about him and I really loved it because it it helped people realize that death ends a life but not a relationship that that goes on it was phenomenal for my parents to read all of this and to know because I think there's a big fear that I'm going to forget and look at all the people that remembered and commented and just kept his memory alive so that was a really unbelievable experience on so many levels so I really do encourage people to write keep memory books, et cetera. Um, The other thing, of course, that you mentioned earlier is the TED Talk, which was Mm -hmm. a bucket list item for me to be able to put in a small, very condensed uh, minute of time or a few minutes of time to share some of what I've shared on this podcast so that people could, again, also normalize their experience. And it, it starts 
thanks to you, Samantha, who was my amazing coach. I'm fine allowed mm -hmm. to say that. You were unbelievable and I couldn't have done it without you. But oh, to you. start with his story and my story of how I got to this field and end also with the way of honoring what I did to honor him by doing this blog and the book and the camp, I'm constantly letting people know that just because someone leaves our lives, that doesn't mean they leave our hearts. That gives me goosebumps. <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful message. And I think it's one that needs to be communicated and felt more. And I think through the work that you're doing, you're really offering people different ways to observe it from childhood to adulthood for introverts and extroverts. Um, there's just so much that we can appreciate and join in from what it is that you've built. We have just scratched the surface on what you have to offer when it comes to grief and loss with this episode. For those interested, the TEDx talk is called Loss and Found. Please Google search it, find it on YouTube. I'm also going to be sharing the link in the show notes. Corey, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Through my website or email, Corey at CoreySirota.com or CoreySirota.com, C-O-R-R-I-E-S-I-R-O-T-A.com. And um, thank you so much for giving me this next platform to share my thoughts, my ideas, and um, accompany you through your journey of, <laughs> of, of learning. It yeah. is a continuous journey. This has been, yeah, absolutely new. There, there have been those peaks and valleys, as you've mentioned as well through this, but it's been a lot of fun. And I really appreciate you taking the time, sharing your passion and your expertise with us. Pleasure. Friends, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Catalyst with Samantha Chris. If you like what you heard, be sure to leave us a review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I hope you're feeling a little more equipped to lean into the unknown and take inspired action.